The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Yeah, and then the other one too. Great, thanks. Welcome everyone. Nice to see folks tonight. And uh, I've been always forgetting to say this, but part of the etiquette is that we stay to the end. I know some people want to get home. You have a busy day coming tomorrow. But it's uh, just kind of nice etiquette not to leave dur- during the Q&A time near the end. And we're pretty good mostly of ending right at 8.30 or a few minutes after. So we just ask people to stay to the very end. That would be nice. And uh, I've been uh, beginning a series of talks now, I think this is week two, on this subject in Buddhism. We call it sila. It's translated in different ways, ethical conduct, morality, integrity. It's really this deep abiding commitment to non-harming. Like I really want, you know, there's something about this value of not harming. I want to live in a way where I'm not contributing to my own harm or the harming of others. And to really see it as a liberating path. And a dangerous path would be when we catch ourselves not caring about harming or justifying harm. That should like, oh, what's that about? Well, that's interesting that I dismiss the well-being of that person. Or I dismiss my own well-being because... You know, I felt obliged to do this or to relate in that way. And I was mentioning this morning when I gave the talk, it can feel a little overwhelming for us because it's uh, complex. You know, when I start, when I uh, purposefully cultivate that sensitivity, that moral sensitivity that I talked about last Sunday, where I'm cultivating a sense of caring about how I'm doing and how you're doing and how the whole world is doing. See, it gets complex. Like every decision, should I stay or should I leave? Even like when we're sitting, should I move my body or will that be causing harm to the people around me if they hear me move? But if I sit still, maybe I'm causing myself harm. You know, maybe it's like really painful and I need to stretch out my leg or I need to stand for a few minutes. Or let alone something more complex like raising children or deciding what kind of food to buy or any number of kinds of choices that have unavoidable consequences for ourselves and others all the time. So this commitment to non-harming isn't about doing it perfectly, like not causing harm. It's about really honoring this sensitivity and seeing the real harm that comes from thinking it doesn't matter. Right? Because that attitude that other living beings don't matter, that, that thought and those actions can only arise from what in Buddhism we'd call ignorance. Like thinking it doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter how I act, doesn't matter what I do in the world or don't do in the world. 
And it, this is real foundational wisdom. It's in a way the first insight, you know, as, as a human being, if we have the good fortune not to be overwhelmed in our lives, so we have some bandwidth to be present, you know, not completely overwhelmed by poverty or a war or whatever it might be, some kind of oppression. And there's enough space in our life for whatever reasons to be present. Right? We'll notice that our actions matter, not just our actions, but our words, and not just our words, but our thoughts. Because every thought, everything we say, everything we do, it leaves an, an impression. And when there's enough stability of awareness, we'll feel the impression that's left behind by every thought, every word we speak, every action we do. And again, it can see, well, that would be intense. I'm not sure I want to be that sensitive. But actually, it's so empowering because when we are that sensitive, when we move in the direction of being more and more sensitive, then we feel empowered like, oh, I can live in a way, right? I can live in a way that leaves a good taste. That's really empowering. And even in, when we do something that causes ourselves or another harm, right? Thinking in an obsessive way that makes our body tight. Right? I mean, that's a common thing to do during a set, right? We're doing fine, feeling pretty calm, and then something, little thought or a little painful emotion shows up, and the mind starts to dig in and spin. And after five or ten minutes of being lost, following that obsessive thread, and then when mindfulness comes back online, well, we feel the reverberations of having been neurotic for five or ten minutes. And both the body and the mind tend to feel pretty tight and tangled. Oh, this is how it works. But we can start over. Okay, now I'm feeling the reverberations of having been neurotic. It feels like this in the mind and body. Now I can be relating to this in a kind and wise way. I can always, we can always, once we realize that it matters what we think, what we say, what we do, and even how we're relating to the present moment is what we say in Buddhism, a karmic act, meaning there are consequences to how we're relating right now. How we're showing up right now has consequences. We're cultivating a future right now. Now, of course, there's many things in play that have nothing to do with how you're relating, what you're thinking, what you're saying. You're not really saying much, what you're doing, right? There's a lot of other things that are in play that are going to have a lot to do with how things are going to unfold for all of us, each of us individually. But the way we get to play, we get to participate, is how we're relating, how we're showing up right now. Right? And it's not for anybody to tell us, like, are we showing up in a skillful or an unskillful way? Because we can tell right now. You can tell what kind of seeds you're planting. Like if you're sitting here stewing about, you know, me or whatever, Buddhism, right? You can, if, if you get interested enough, if you can be mindful, you'll see, like, well, how, how's that working for me? 
Like, given that my mind is doing this, thinking in this way, obsessing in this way, what sort of tendencies are getting reinforced or getting set in motion? And is that the kind of life, the kind of heart, that I want to set in motion? We say in Buddhism that if you want to know the past, check out what's showing up in your heart right now, because where else would this experience of the mind and the heart that's like this right now, where else would this come from except from what was set in motion in the past? There's no other place it could have come from. Past conditions. And if you want to know the future, you don't have to be a psychic, how are you relating right now? What kind of seeds are we relating, or kind of seeds, rather, we're planting right now? Because that's how we cultivate, how we set it in motion, the future. I was thinking this week, you know, I'll give a few more talks about this subject, sila, or this beautiful resonant commitment to non-harming as a path of liberation, right? I'll give some more talks, but tonight I thought it would be useful to really see it as a kind of healing. Like, it is complex. The complexity can be overwhelming, often is overwhelming, but it's better than pretending it doesn't matter because that's kind of our alternative. Initially, as an ordinary human being, we can get interested in non-harming and realize how complex it is that we can't figure it out with the thinking mind, what I should do or shouldn't do. We can only train ourselves to be sensitive moment by moment and let our moral choices, our actions, ethical actions, come out of that moment-to-moment sensitivity. It doesn't really lend itself to sort of these unquestioned rules. And, you know, we, we want to operate, just tell me what's right and wrong, you know, and then operate from this, like, objective standard that was handed to us by somebody who knows more than we know. But, but life is more complex than that. Like, even in Buddhism, we have this first training. We undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. But, you know, sometimes it's complex. And maybe, I don't know, I haven't been in this situation myself, but it may feel like if I don't do something that causes harm, perhaps even kills a living being, a lot of other living beings may be killed. Right? Think of a war situation or whatever. So it's not so simple, but it's a very useful training to take up because then when I'm about to slap a mosquito or purchase an ant trap or whatever it might be, I remember that commitment, that training. Honey, wake up. Whenever you feel justified in killing, wake up. Really bring a fresh and open mind, open heart, and really rely on your moral, this moral sensitivity here in the heart. What does it feel like putting the ant trap up? What does it feel like? So instead of doing the slap of the mosquito unconsciously, like, see that it's a living creature, doesn't want to be harmed, right? Notice the irritation of being 
having your blood sucked <laughs> without giving permission. So noticing the whole thing, and then notice the impulse to want to hit, and maybe you're catching it even after the fact. But wherever we catch it, wherever we are, notice. Like, because we're about to become the person who does whatever we're about to do. So maybe we're refraining from slapping the mosquito and we're going to go like that, right? So what is that? What reverberation, what seed gets planted when we do that? What seed gets planted when we do this? What seed gets planted when we spend, you know, $150 for one of those electrocution Devices for insects, flying insects. Some of you have seen those <laughs> zapping machines that sit on your back porch, lure unsuspecting insects, and zap them. Or any number of things. I mean, I'm just using that as an obvious example. Does it become kind of, does the complexity just become a real burden in our life? Or does that sensitivity feel good? And same thing with shopping, and the same thing with using plastic bags or flying on a jet plane. When we realize, you know, that somehow we're complicit in what's happening to the environment by all these sort of, you know, death by a, a zillion little strokes. You know, one more plastic bag, one more flight on an airplane, one more purchase of this, one more turning the heat up, one more. But the other extreme would definitely cause harm to ourselves. Okay, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have a shelter, I'm not going to have a car, I'm not going to have clothes, I'm not going to. So it isn't about having a plan, it's about is it enlivening, is it liberating to be sensitive in this moral way where we care we don't want to cause harm, and we don't have a plan, and we know we don't have a plan. Is that like a setup for suffering or a setup for liberation? And that's an interesting thing to explore. And again, not to take my word or the Buddhist word, but to really check it out, like move in the direction of being sensitive around what we take. Like the second training, right? And the Buddha, instead of being dictates from above, the Buddha is suggesting that naturally when we're not overwhelmed, when we have some space, some, sensi- uh, some interest in the sensitivity, we'll notice that causing harm to ourselves or others leaves a heavy impression in the heart. Right? We call it remorse. And that will happen to anybody who bothers to check. Like We may think the sort of you know, the evil ones out there, that they don't feel remorse. Well, not being aware of remorse doesn't mean there isn't remorse. Or not being aware of what the heart's feeling doesn't mean the heart isn't feeling anything. Like we can, what we see might be our fixed idea that that person doesn't matter, you know. We may have a really strong idea that the people that we're harming don't count. But that doesn't mean that that idea isn't leaving a heavy impression in the heart and all the harm that we're causing because of the fixation, identification with that idea also isn't leaving an impression in the heart. Like if you imagine, 
an evil person, a person who's causing a lot of harm, right? Anybody want to be one of those evil people? Like, would we tra- trade spaces, places with that person? No, no one would want to be an evil person. Nobody with some sort of spacious reflection would choose to be one of those people, even if they were attractive or had a lot of power. I mean, that's my guess, at least, that we wouldn't want, because on some level we intuit like how guarded, how much denial a person would have to be and how deluded a person would be and how heavy that denial or delusion would be or how painful the remorse would be. The Buddha describes, you know, um, the absence of this integrity, this commitment to non-harming is those two things, the kind of open wound of remorse, like we did some things today and then we don't really, we want to keep the TV on until we fall asleep or have the book there because we don't want to feel what's left over for, from what we did today. We don't want to remember it. We don't want to think about it because it hurts what we did. So we have to stay busy. We have to stay distracted. And we feel a little bit haunted by the remorse. And then the more we end up practicing distraction and denial so that it gets ossified, so we can't even find our way back to the rawness of the pain, then that exists as a kind of, you know, the denial. He, uh, this one article I read by Tani Saro Bhikkhu, a, Buddhist, a Western Buddhist uh, monk, it's like the gnarly scar tissue, right, that can really keep a joint or keep part of the body from working well, but it's done, you know, it's sort of covered up the wound, but maybe it's brought in a lot of dysfunction or a lot of lack of mobility, lack of being able to live our life because of this denial. We've closed ourselves off from more and more and more. And you, you know, we see this in our friends. Sometimes we even see it in our own lives. Those people that we've had some kind of conflict with and then we've thrown them out of our heart And it really hurts. It doesn't ever really make sense to live with resentment and hatred because it hurts so much. But but it's so painful, we, we imagine we can't go back there and allow healing to happen. Not literally back to the relationship, back to the pain that we have in our heart, the memory, the pain that goes with the memory, and to just let it be an open wound it seems better to have that sort of scar tissue around it. But then we become, you know, (laughs) a big knot of scar tissue, not really alive at all. We've, little by little, again, one of those things where we're tiny, many tiny little cuts, you know, we become someone who's disconnected from the only thing we have, which is our life. Because being in the moment, being alive in the moment, means we're you know, vulnerable to feeling what we feel, and that's just not okay. So we choose to be distracted and unaware and lost in thought. Let me read a little bit from this 
article that I mentioned. This is a quote from a different article, but it's related. Um, Ajahn Tani Saro, this Buddhist monk, Western Buddhist monk, he says, my relation to you is determined by the things that I have done to you and that you have done to me. We are related not by, not by what we inherently are, but what we choose to do, right? The actions, the thoughts, the words that we have spoken to each other. And in this article, The Healing Power of the Precepts. So the precepts are these five trainings. The training to refrain from killing. Sometimes you hear it translated, but it, in a way, it's as he um, argues in this article, it's good to keep that literal translation, undertaking the training to refrain from killing living beings. Second one is undertaking the training to refrain from stealing or taking things that haven't been given. The third is undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, so causing harm with our sexual activity. Undertaking the training to refrain from harmful speech, so lying or slander, or even idle speech, saying things that don't need to be said, can, can, can cause harm. And the fifth is undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. Right? So these are five trainings. And um, it's just interesting, the sort of literal nature of these trainings. Because it's really for human beings when we're in, in challenging circumstances. Because when we're not in challenging circumstances, that sensitivity will take care of itself. But it's when the rubber hits the road, we say, right? And somebody's irritating us, like a, or a mosquito's irritating us. Or there's something really attractive that we could take and nobody would know. And we don't even know who it belongs to, and they probably don't even know it's here, and they're not going to find it anyway, and somebody else is going to take it. So maybe I'll just take it, put it to good use. Or, you know, really attracted to somebody and manipulating the situation to get what we want in the situation without regards to the well-being of all. Or just being careless with our words and talking about somebody who's not there. Because we can, because it's funny, because people might think we're witty as we put down somebody or make fun of somebody, you know. And I mean, it's interesting to me, you know, where we're so sensitive in some ways, how culturally uh, our comedians who we laugh at have no compunction about making fun of people's bodies if they're a politician, you know? But, you know, in ways that we would not allow in sort of civilized or polite company, you know, we'd never let, like I see this, you know, and, I, and I'm not, well, it doesn't matter what my politics are, but I find it appalling how we justify people because we think they're being unskillful it's okay to be mean-spirited, which is sort of interesting. That sort of, whatever that logic is that allows it. And the question is like, well, what does that feel like when we say that? Or for me, what does it feel like when I hear somebody saying that, when I'm listening? 
what's, what's that impression like, you know, to laugh? And what am I, what kind of heart am I setting in motion? And again, it's like, this is not about being good. This is about being happy, right? Sila is all about being happy. And we might think that, you know, um, as, as uh, Ajahn Tanisaro says in this article, you know, we, we'd kind of like to think that just meditating would take care of us. But this path of sila, this training in non-harming, is one-third of the practice. We're using awareness, and in this case, awareness in how we're relating to the world, to each other, to our possessions. You know, it's really at this more concrete part of our life, the most gross, immediate part of our life. That's the world of sila, ethical conduct. And how do we relate to it in ways that plant seeds of happiness? And then another third of the practice is relating to what's, you know, just the environment of our mind. So sila is the environment of our communities, our interactions with the world, right? Samadhi is how we relate to the inner environment of our heart and mind. And then the wisdom is the most subtle part of the mind, the sort of underlying beliefs and views. And so the Buddha divides up the spiritual path as a purification of this gross part of our lives, our relationships. Right? So we purify it <clears throat> by being aware. That's that moral sensitivity. Oh, how does that feel? What's the reverberation? Even if we're, doesn't matter if we're 10 years late. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember when I said that and I've been in denial or somehow, it's because I catch myself sometimes and I bet others do too, where the story I have is whatever I did in that situation, that was the right thing to do. I did the right thing. And I, it's kind of like a, something I project or I lay over, basically, in an underhanded way, what I'm saying is, don't listen, don't feel what you feel around that situation, because I'm telling you, you did the right thing. Now, the way Buddha sets up morality is, morality is the sensitivity in the heart. It doesn't matter what you think or society thinks. What matters is when the mind is sensitive, and that's an important point, not when you're superficial, not when you're making yourself feel what you want to feel, what you think you should feel, but when you're actually mindful, which means not judging, no expectations, you're just present. Oh, it's like this. That tells you what's left over. That's how you know whether something was skillful or unskillful. When we do something unskillful, and even when we remember doing something that was unskillful, by definition, the way we know it was unskillful isn't because we thought it through, it's because we feel what's left over. And when something's skillful, we know it's skillful because it's clean. There's nothing but open space left over, right? It's interesting, we might think when we do something really good, we feel really good, but when you really investigate that good feeling you have when you've been skillful, it's like, it's a kind of cleanliness. It's the 
absence of remorse, the bliss of blamelessness, as it's said in the tradition. I'll just give one example of this in my life. After my father died, my mother died a year and a half before him, and I you know, lived here. They, I came back after living away for my, during my 20s and early 30s, came back to Minnesota in 91. And uh, so I was here as they aged and eventually died. And I remember feeling at, after my dad died, my mother having already died, that, that sort of absence of remorse, like I felt good about doing the best I could to be there for them. It wasn't perfect. I wasn't a perfect son, but I, I was there. I did my best right, to kind of help them as they got older and sort of support them in the dying process. And the feeling wasn't that, wasn't like this edifice of pride. It was like, I am so happy I don't have any remorse. Like, there was something I knew I should have done, but I decided to not pay attention to that feeling. Right? So when I looked in my heart, it felt clean, it felt light, the absence of remorse. And to me, that felt really good. Right? It's like the sleep of the just, we say. You go to bed at night, you're in your pajamas, you're sitting there or lying there, and just quite naturally sort of the memories of the day flow through. But nothing kind of evokes that, oh, I can't believe that. You know, I said that, or I forgot to do that. Or, right? These things are what haunt us. And to sort of have that replay and to not feel burdened. And of course, if there is remorse, we work with it. You know, We understand it. We forgive ourselves. We plan on making amends if that's the appropriate thing to do. We sort of institutionalize it in our heart. Okay, honey, don't forget that again. So for our spiritual lives to really, like the Buddha gave us some medicine, the purification of our actions in the world, the purification of our qualities of the mind and heart, and the purification of our view. We purify our actions. We have the bliss of blamelessness, freedom from remorse, we purify our mind, we have the happiness of samadhi, the calm, the clarity, the stability of awareness. And when we purify our view, our understanding, we have the peace of non-grasping, non-attachment. Because attachment, we say in Buddhism, comes from wrong understanding, wrong view. We take things personally. So we're purifying all three of those areas And a lot of times when our spiritual life isn't working is we've gone to these more subtle aspects of spiritual life. I just want to go right to non-attachment. But we haven't put as much energy in this this moral sensitivity, living with non-harming, and really cultivating like, okay, I want to live in a way, I want to relate to others, and I want to relate to myself with this commitment to non-harming. And I want to really relax with the immense complexity of that. I want to feel empowered that, not that I can figure it out cognitively, but I can be sensitive. 
so that at the end of the day or at the end of my life as I review, I'll realize that in as many moments as possible, I was morally sensitive. I cared about what I was thinking, what I was saying, and what I was doing. My intention, my motivation was to not cause harm. Because a lot of times, you know, like when we're texting and driving, for example, those kind of things, or just distracted, even eating, it's sort of like we might think, oh yeah, I'm not intentionally wanting to harm anybody, but I'm intentionally thinking that taking care of my hunger or taking care of this text is more important than being a sensitive driver. Right? So it's, it is a subtle dismissing of reality that we're zipping around at 60 miles an hour in you know, a ton of metal. Maybe it's deserving of my full attention right now. Right? Maybe that's how I take care of myself and others is by like being respectful. Then same thing with our words. It's actually not so different than zipping around at 70 miles an hour on a freeway because our words are just as impactful. You know how when we get whipped up in the energy of the conversation, we can end up, I mean, this happens to me all the time in front of the group. If I kind of start getting in the energy and stop being sensitive as I'm talking, it's easy to say things that are careless, that can cause harm, that can leave a bad taste in people's heart because I wasn't as sensitive as I might have been with the choice of words or even the tone of my voice. And again, if, if it's a fear of being bad that's driving us, it won't feel good. That's like causing harm to ourselves. But if it's a wholesome desire to want to take care of everybody, including myself, it feels really good to become more and more morally sensitive Now I'll read this. The Buddha's path consisted not only of mindfulness, concentration, and insight practices, but also of virtue, beginning with the five precepts. In fact, the precepts constitute the first step in the path. There is a tendency in the West to dismiss the five precepts as Sunday school rules bound to the old cultural norms that no longer apply to our modern society. But this misses the role that the Buddha intended for them. They are part of a course of therapy for wounded minds. In particular, they're aimed at curing two ailments that underlie low self-esteem, regret and denial. When our actions don't measure up to certain standards of behavior, we either, one, regret or the actions, or two, engage in one of two kinds of denial, denying that our actions did in fact happen or denying the standards of measurement, that the standards of measurement are really valid, right? And this is what I meant earlier when I said like, we train ourselves not to trust the sensitivity of our hearts, like what we're feeling. But that's a dangerous choice we make when we like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna feel what I'm feeling, I don't want to sense this. I don't want to feel this, intuit this, because we start to cut ourselves off from life. And he goes on, these reactions are like wounds in the mind. Regret is an open wound, tender to the touch, while denial is like a hardened, twisted scar tissue around a tender spot. 
When the mind is wounded in these ways, it can't settle down comfortably in the present, for it finds itself resting on raw, exposed flesh or calcified knots. Even when it's forced to stay in the present, it's there only in a tensed, contorted, and partial way. And so the insights it gains tend to be contorted and partial as well. Only if the mind is free of wounds and scars can it be expected to settle down comfortably and freely in the present and to give rise to undistorted discernment. This is where the five precepts come in. They are designed to heal these wounds and scars. Healthy self-esteem comes from living up to a set of standards that are practical, clear-cut, humane, and worthy of respect. The five precepts are formulated in such a way that they provide just such a set of standards. And I mentioned this briefly at the beginning that the specificity of the five precepts, like taking up the training not to kill. I mean, at the end of the day, we can reflect back, yeah, I wasn't perfect, but you know what? I didn't intentionally kill any living beings today. You see, it's like, oh yeah, I didn't intentionally, consciously take anything that wasn't given to me. I didn't act out my sexual energy in ways that caused harm. I didn't use my words in ways that caused harm. I didn't intoxicate the mind that led me to be careless. Oh, it's kind of like, I dodged that bullet. Because we could have done those things easily, right? And had that pain of remorse or calcified, you know, the deepened the scar tissue a little bit more, closed herself off from life. So there's something about having it. Now, it's really fine, it's beautiful, in fact, to have a more general aspiration, not just to refrain from killing, but to really contribute to healing, to really contribute to take to alleviating suffering, right? So you can have a more general aspiration, but it's nice to have something that really stands out, that really lives in our heart as a little mindfulness bell or even alarm clock. Okay, well, there are a lot of mosquitoes, right? Or there's a spider in the bathtub. Or whatever it might be. I'm going shopping. Okay. Do I participate in animal agriculture? Now, I'm not giving an opinion here, but it's like we're complicit. So so what does that feel like? Do I want to know what it feels like? Or am I telling myself a story, a fixed view that it's okay. Humans have dominion over the other species on the planet. It's for us to decide, you know, or my well-being, having the concentrated protein of animal flesh, is more important. Now, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. Really, I'm not. I find it a a really enlivening and interesting question because what we want to do, what the thinking mind, conceptualizing mind wants to do is I'm I'm a vegan or I'm a vegetarian or I'm a carnivore. But it's really moment by moment. So it's like how much meat is needed, right? So... And, and, and let's say, oh, you know, I'm not going to have meat tonight. And then to feel like, oh, that's so nice. 
to minimize some suffering, to, to really take that first precept a little first and second, because you know we're taking something that probably wasn't freely offered. <laughs> the cows or the chickens aren't saying, take me. <laughs> And again, you know, there's no way to avoid this, right? Even if you're a vegan, they're plowing the fields and insects are getting killed and life eats life. So this is messy. This is the enormity of the complexity, or as Carol, a friend of mine says, the unbearable complexity. Is that what it is? (laughs) The unbearable complexity, right? Because it is. It seems unbearable. But there's something more unbearable than the complexity, Ignoring the, the, the complexity, thinking that there's another way than to be a morally sensitive human being. And to really begin to sense that it's in the direction of freedom. And to start off with these five trainings, I really encourage you to memorize them. Not hard, you can find our chant book. If you look under the web page, or homepage rather, resources, and then the last thing under resources is our chant book, which we use on Sunday mornings and other occasions. So the digital version is online. And then you'll, when you look through the table of contents, it's just a PDF. You can print it if you want. But you might want to just print the three pages of the refuges and precepts. And it's, you know, you'll see it there. It's in the table of contents where the precepts are. And you have Thich Nhat Hanh, a, a well-known teacher, his comments about each of the five trainings, undertaking the training not to kill, undertaking the training not to steal, take what hasn't been given, undertaking the training not to cause harm with our sexual activities, undertaking the training not to cause harm with our words, our speech, and undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. And to really like use it institutionalize it in our hearts so that as we're in this world of relating, interrelating with others, the commitment, the taking up of the training will kind of activate attention. Oh, this is interesting. Honey, pay attention here. Notice, like, trust. I have this sensitivity here. What is it telling me? What Because, you know, this is where imagination, I can imagine taking something that wasn't given, and then I can also then imagine what that would feel like. It's not perfect, but it's useful information, isn't it? I can imagine, I mean, how many times do we do this when we have a difficult thing to say to a friend or a partner? We imagine ourselves saying what we have to say, and then we imagine what it will feel like to say that, what will be left over, and then we try it again because we care about not causing harm. We value not causing harm. And it's really a way of um, just respecting the life that we live. And it really helps us avoid the shadow in Buddhism and I think generally in spirituality, which is, I often jokingly call it, get me the hell out of here. Like life is complex, life is tricky, it's messy, So I want to go to some transcendent place where I won't be bothered by all the messiness. And one of the neat things in Buddhist cosmology is, you know, these heavenly realms, as it's said in the Buddhist cosmology, you're still in the loop. You're still in birth and death. 
You can go from a heaven realm to a hell realm to a human realm to an animal realm. Now, again, I'm not, I don't know the underlying cosmology, right? But I love the story. It's a helpful story because it helps us avoid the myth that there's some place to go where we're out of the complexity, where our actions, our thoughts, our words don't matter. And, and this is a much more embodied understanding of freedom when we can, when relationship, when the world, when justice matters, right? And we can still be free. It's like, okay, I can either care about racial injustice or I can care about economic injustice or I can care about the environment or I can be free and enlightened. But to really see how they depend on each other. Right? That the freedom that we uncover in the practice is both built on the development of sila but is expressed in sila in living with non-harming. So it's both a way to develop freedom and a way to express freedom. If you're looking for wise people to be your friends or to be your teacher, this is what we observe. You, you know, in a perfect world, and this is spelled out in the Buddhist tradition, you hang around the person. You observe them. It's not just their words you listen to. You watch what they do with money, what they do with their sexual relationships, how they handle power, how they use their words, you know, and you do the smell test. <laughs> what does this smell like? You know, what does this person smell like? Like, what, what does it feel like as I see them doing their life? Oh, doesn't feel good. Doesn't seem skillful. It's much more useful than just listening to somebody's words. Oh, they sound wise. Oh, that's a beautiful thing, what they just said. Now, we don't, you know, a lot of teachers, a lot of teaching situations, we don't get to observe the teacher. And, you know, that's okay. We can use the words and, and ground them in our own life and, take, you know, and, yeah, just have a useful relationship with the words. But we don't have a useful relationship with the teacher. The friends and teachers that are really inspiring on this kind of more integrated level are the ones that we can really see are walking their talk. That, that the freedom is getting expressed in relationships and committee meetings and issues around money and attraction and all these other more complex places in life. Which is why I've saved at least some time, almost 10 minutes, to hear from a few of you, because we've all been learning a thing or two through our successes and failures in these, this area of ethical conduct. And it'd be nice to hear from folks. Questions you have, comments from your life you'd like to share with the group. What comes to mind? Could you say a little bit more about remorse that it's too late to avoid? Remorse that's too late to avoid? Yes. Yeah, we, we want to kind of make it a beautiful thing in our heart. It's painful, of course. That's the nature of remorse. That sort of, oh. But it can easily slide into guilt, where, which is a kind of self-hatred. Or wisdom can kind of use the remorse like, I'm so glad to know that that doesn't help what I said or what I did or 
even what another person said or did was really, as I understand it, unskillful, and I don't want to forget it. Because, you know, we see others doing unskillful things, and we can have that sort of secondary remorse, like, because we can sense how I could have done the same thing, I could have said the same thing. And I'm so glad to see in living color what kind of harm and painful remorse that sets in motion. So now it's sort of like a memorial. Honey, don't forget this. Right? It's sort of the pain is that beautiful monument to not forgetting. So that's how we use it. We appreciate that we're less likely to forget because we have this monument of pain, of remorse. Yeah, please, you want to go next? Uh, Toward the back there? Patricia, well, let's go here, and then we can come over here through somebody. Um, so I think I'm one of the people who learned the non-tactile things about Buddhism first because that's the way a lot of books are written for Westerners. But can you talk about how remorse ties into having a lot of space? Like, you know, the, the metaphor of throwing paint and it doesn't stick on anything? Mm-hmm. Like, because I, you talk about remorse, and I think that I don't have enough room for all of it. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's a really good question because, you know, this third area of the practice. So we have the purification of the our actions, and the purification of our relationships. We have the purification of the heart, and we have the purification of view. And with the purification of view, that's the, like the image of throwing paint, but it doesn't land anywhere, it doesn't stick anywhere, or what we sometimes call emptiness or non-attachment, right? But non-attachment, understanding that remorse isn't personal, doesn't mean there isn't remorse. So understanding that when I cause you harm or when I cause myself harm, that the me that's causing the harm is just nature, and the one that's being affected by the harm, that's also just impersonal nature. But it's still true on that relative sense. I've caused you harm or I've caused myself harm. So understanding the empty nature doesn't take away from cause and effect. It just means that cause and effect is happening in this natural, impersonal way. So we, uh, the sort of commitment to sila, it comes first because it really stabilizes the heart. It helps us, you know, that sensitivity then allows us to be sensitive to the heart, to really cultivate wholesome qualities in the heart, more stability of awareness. That greater sensitivity helps us see the view and purify the view. Once these insights start to arise, it would only be self-centered egoism that would say, well, now I can cheat. Now I can still steal. Like where would that inclination to cause harm arise from, from emptiness? So there's no, it's not incongruent between the commitment to non-harming and the feeling of remorse. It's just that when there's real wisdom in a moment, 
then the remorse will be seen as remorse, but it's just nature. But it's still information, right? Nature, impersonal nature is still information. So like weather would blow in, oh, this is a really dark cloud. I should really, you know, make sure everything's covered. Make sure everything's safe because there's a big storm coming. But it's very impersonal, you know, when we when we don't have that deep insight, then the danger that remorse sort of points to feels very personal. When there's a lot of wisdom, the danger doesn't feel personal, but it's still seen as dangerous, the anger that's gotten triggered, or the greed, the lust that's gotten triggered. Does that make sense? Yeah, thanks for asking. That's a really good question. Did somebody over here? Yeah. This will have to be the last question or comment. This is kind of, it's a theoretical question, I guess. It sounds kind of abstract, but it still feels like it matters. Um, so I went to the Bell Museum and watched this incredibly incredible film about the Habitat Earth. It was a very beautiful film, and it's also all about how much every living being and plant and everything in our universe depends on killing something else. You know, like the the krill in the sea gets eaten by this and you know all of these webs of connections which continue to let our world exist. And so how does that how how is that congruent with never killing anything? But the remember these five trainings of non killing, non stealing, not causing harm with sexual activity. I'm repeating it on purpose, so you'll memorize them. With our words, not causing harm with our words, not intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. This is just pointing out, this is for you to check out for yourself. So the whole conversation is, are you willing, like in terms of food, are you willing to trust more the sensitivity of your own heart, not my heart, but your heart, to really know what you're doing when you do it. So you bind this, you know what that's about, you, you kind of understand what it implies, that you're, like where it's come from, right? And what kind of impression, and trust that. So nobody's telling anybody what kind of food to buy. Nobody is telling anybody what kind of food to buy. The teaching here around Sila is, are you, do, will you find that being sensitive is enlivening and liberating versus living with a fixed view, like it doesn't matter, we're going to, life eats life. I don't have to be sensitive. I don't have to be curious about like what I actually feel knowing that this is what I'm doing. So it's like, is, and the same thing with words. Like I'm speaking, but I'm, am I willing to be sensitive? Like what does it feel like to have just said this? You know, what's left over in my heart? What's the reverberation there around our choices, around our relationships with everything, right? So absolutely right. Life eats life. That's the sort of place. This is the realm, right? This earthly realm, life eats life. There's no way around that. The question is, what, what is their freedom in this world for human beings? And... Does that freedom arise 
through this willingness to be more and more sensitive or to be more and more closed off from sensitivity? What leads to freedom, real release, real love and wisdom? And just just take a moment, let go of the words. Just enough time for a breath or two. Maybe pass the mic back to Patricia, the back of the room. Appreciate a little moment of silence. And remembering, I care about this sensitive heart. I care enough to show up and feel, see what's here. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.